This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ignoring Warnings. Arkham Today. The Yellow Sound. And Danny Casolaro's Octopus. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into... Hold up. What the heck has happened here? My God, Robin, the gaming hut has been trashed. Oh, there's an exploded blender in the corner. Some, was someone making drinks? There's all manner of fur and nonsense. Or is, I think there's some blood on oh the Oh my God. And it's, it's, it's not the, that's not the dry erase ink. That's, that's legitimate blood. Oh, like comic chaos has turned surprisingly disturbing. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like a turn to disturbing, but that's the kind of turn you get when you are answering Patreon backer questions, such as those of Brian, beloved Patreon backer, who asks, with a Gremlins prequel coming out next year, I've been wondering if there's any reason to continue. No, that's not his question at all. That's my question. <laughs> How exactly would the three rules of the Mogwai, Brian continues, be worked into an RPG where the PCs already know what to expect, which I guess is a somewhat roundabout version of... All of my players love this fun monster. How do I put it in the game without my players immediately applying its specialized means of destruction or otherwise short-circuiting the thing that we actually love about the monster? Right. Uh, because there's two things about the Mogwai are uh, warnings. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second one is the special means of destruction. Right. So these are two separate topics. How yeah. to do warnings mm -hmm. at the gaming table and how to do special means of destruction at the gaming table. I think we've done special means of destruction. 
So the answer, I guess, is just, you know, the equivalent of Spike gives sunblock to all of the evil gremlins. And there you go. Mm -hmm. You have to find a new special means of uh, destruction. So, so I guess this brings us then to uh, warnings, which is a classic part of fairy tales in not just role-playing games, in fact, probably even more so in fiction and in drama and in movies, and what to do when the players already know the answer to the warning. And the simplest answer there is to do exactly what Gremlins does, which is that it's not the protagonist who spills water on Gizmo. He does not uh, disobey the warning because uh, the thing about protagonists who ignore warnings is we think they're rubes. They become right. anti-heroes. Yep. They suffer their tragic fall for ignoring warnings. At the very least, they've they've ignored the warning and deserve whatever uh, hilarious, murderous pranksterism gets up as a result. Right. Uh, just like the uh, protagonist in the uh, remake of Nightmare Alley deserves everything he gets because he gets a bunch of fairy tale warnings and ignores them. Yep. But you, the player character, will know definitely to obey warnings, even if there's some sort of mechanism to prevent you from using your out of character knowledge. That's, that's annoying. Just give them the knowledge. So it's, it's not a Billy in the movie who spills water on Gizmo. It's Pete. It's some other jerk. So that's the answer is, you know, the warnings very well. Your whole thing is trying to make sure everybody obeys the warnings. But I don't know if you've ever been, you know, at the party where you're the responsible one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you're basically the universe's designated driver in this case. Exactly. And eventually Someone's going to screw it up, especially if you establish that there's someone who's going to deliberately set out to ignore the warning because someone has an agenda and a reason to have the uh, the Mogwai turn into gremlins. And you have a feeling that eventually that's going to happen. And you probably want to have it happen sooner than later because it's not the fun part before the gremlins arrive, right? No, it's that, that's just uh, establishing what's going on on your little block or in your Clamp Tower's office building, which is the other version of that because we sort of, we have a version of gremlins where the PCs already know what to expect in Gremlins 2, well, one of the greatest films of this or any generation. And that's exactly what it is. It becomes a sort of a, a, a treasure hunt or a, or a monster hunt as they you know, allow a character with an agenda to get uh, Gizmo wet again and troubles ensue. And so the, you know, I, I think Gremlins 2 almost gives you the perfect model of how to do this because what makes Gremlins 2 fun and crazy and even better than Gremlins is that you, you've rung changes on it. So instead of just being berserk, uh, murderous vandals, the Gremlins are also kind of apocalyptic and also have weird superpowers because uh, Christopher Lee's genetic mutation lab got involved somehow. And so you have uh, all of the fun of regular, okay, I recognize these gremlins, these monsters, these uh, story elements, these warnings, but then you've had, yep, that was bad, but it's somehow maybe not worse, but certainly wildly different or different in a style or in uh tenor from what you were expecting while still having plenty of good old blood soaked poltergeist combat, which is the fun of a gremlins movie. Right. Right. Now I suppose once you take the gremlins veneer off it and just go, okay, here's a, here's a thing that you can't allow to happen uh, that somebody else is going to try to do. The problem with that is that then puts you in a defensive posture and a defensive posture is usually stationary. Right. And so I, I think if you're pitching this as a gremlins thing, the players will be disappointed if the gremlins don't show up. But if you 
change the file off the serial numbers and, you know, here's this baby dragon. If you don't get it back to its homeland soon enough, or if alchemical mist uh, gets sprayed onto it, it will turn into an evil black dragon. Whereas if you get it back to its mom and he's properly raised and, you know, you know, taught manners and arithmetic, he'll grow up into a benevolent celestial dragon. That is, you know, you're not quite giving the game away there, and it's not as disappointing if the black dragon doesn't show up. Right. Uh, then you want to do something else that has them on the move. So it's not, well, I've already given away, it's get him home, you know, go from A to B. Don't just have a, a situation where they're hunkered down trying to prevent the gremlins from having water poured on them or uh, the, and the the dragon or w- whatever version of it you want to do. Make sure there's something mobile, a goal to move toward rather than just the anti-goal yeah. of stopping the fun thing from happening. They also have other goals, uh, again, in, in Gremlins and Gremlins 2. You know, they have their mugwai. You know, Billy's like, I'm not going to get my mugwai wet. And then he has other stuff he has to do. He can't be standing, you know, four feet from a mugwai for his whole life. He has to go off and, you know, meet his boss or he has to have some other kind of an adventure. You know, you if you've got a baby dragon that you need to keep away from alchemical mist and darkness and uh, there's a time pressure element, or even if there's no time pressure element, you just have to keep him away from, you know, uh, mist, darkness and uh, acid. And you're like, OK, we're just going to keep him away from those things. I've got him in my little box. But now the king is saying, well, you're just goofing around your house. Go kill me some orcs or go, you know, investigate this uh, uh, other bunch of uh, thieves or something. And as you do that, well, you're in, an, you're in your setting and the setting continues to operate. And so your rival breaks in or your, you know, stupid cousin that you've been taking dependent points for shows up to clean your palace as a surprise. And he uses that new cleaning acid. Oh, well, there you go. Fun follows when. So you have other goals than just guard the dragon guard the dragon we know is the main goal because the movie is called dragon what turns into black dragon but (laughs) we're gonna workshop that one but in the game it's just one of the zillion things you have to do and i think this works best again like gremlins in a urban environment where lots of stuff is always busting in on you and giving you stuff to do and you have to go you know have adventures and do stuff but you're not so far away from your dragon that you think well, I'm, I'll just bring it with me. And, you know, uh, that, of course, w- then creates its own problem because once you've carried the dragon out of your stronghold, well, you know, the place is full of dragon thieves and mist magicians and, and goodness knows what could happen. Right. Now, I hear some listeners, surely not Brian, thinking to themselves, this answer is so good that it's actually ducking the question. So what if you really, really want your player character to be at least tempted to break the rules. And the answer is, well, you got to tempt them heavily. you got to put them in a no-win situation where there's something equally important that they desperately want. Mm-hmm. And the way for them to get it is, oh, I, I knew that we couldn't put water on the gizmo, but we need a couple of gremlins to do this. And I know it's going to go bad, but we need these gremlins. Oh, man, I guess we got to do it. And that can be fun, too, if you do it in a way where everybody kind of knows what the game is and enjoys the fact that you're going headed to that point. Right. Rather than using the heavy, powerful uh, hand of the jam's narrative control to put them in a genuinely no-win situation that they really hate, right? You want them to feel manipulated into doing what they actually want to do rather than just like, oh, man, win another stupid Hobson's choice. That's You you don't want that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, if only... 
there could be some sort of bloody chaos over here to distract the guards from what we actually want to do or have to do. It's like, oh, I, we have a way to make bloody chaos. We have a we have a mogwai. Well, and, and you have your loose cannon. The, the other thing about role playing is you have a loose cannon character. Yeah, player. Sorry, loose cannon player in your group, <laughs> and they're going to be sitting there the whole time going. How can I get water on the Mogwai in a way that make, won't make them want to kill me? So you, you may have some help on that front. Come to think of it. I'm just drinking water from my sprinkler the way that I always do. <laughs> what? I, I'm just playing yeah. my character. Yeah. <laughs> and that, of course, is part of the good fun of having this sort of story. You know, it, it does ruin the fairy tale if you're like, well, I simply would not be rude to the old man. It's like, well, all right, fine. Good for you. You need to invite players, and I think this is a, a generally always sort of a situation, invite players to take part in whatever the the scenario question is. And the question is not, how do I save my Mogwai from, you know, turning into Gremlins? The question is, uh, in Gremlins 1, can my family come back together and make the story about that? And also there are Gremlins. And in Gremlins 2, it's isn't capitalism and, ex- and specifically Donald Clamp awful and Sure enough, the gremlins reveal that while also allowing a moment of, you know, redemption for all the human characters. So don't build the story around gremlins bust out question mark, have a reason and a goal and a direction. And I think even the player who objected to someone uh, sprinkling your gremlin when you were out, your mugwai when you were out, will... Say, well, it was, it was worth it, uh, worth that contrivance to get to this end point. And the end point doesn't have to be thematic. It can even just be, you know, strategic. You know, you've dealt, you dealt so well with that baby dragon, even after it turned into the black dragon and spit acid everywhere. We've got our eye on you now, son. We'd like to give you the emerald of seeing so that you can always communicate with the priests and, you know, maybe do some jobs for us. And, and, and that sort of a goal at the end is the, you know, the, the payment, the repayment for the players having basically gone along with the no win scenario. Um, and that I think is, is something to keep in mind that the point of the game should not be, Oh, this is really going to make the players mad. The point of the game should be how mad can I make the players to justify them getting this actual reward or this actual advancement or achievement that they want in the game. Right. And finally, it occurs to me that it might be fun to do a convention game or a one shot. That is basically a gremlin branded version of Who's the Werewolf, where you're all gathered in a remote location, you have a Mogwai, and everybody knows that one person there is the ringer who wants to get water in the Mogwai, <laughs> and you have to figure out uh, who's the one who's going to do it. And that could be fun with or without the uh, water getting on the Mogwai. Spoiler, water gets on the Mogwai. Right. Water always gets on the Mogwai. Yeah, there's a... It- sort of a hot potato situation. You have to pass the Mogwai amongst the characters and it's like, oh man. And do you contrive to be there when you really suspect the character? There can be some fun with that. Um, hot potato by itself is a fun strategy to introduce into a role-playing game story, but that would be another segment. And since we're already doing another segment, we should stop this segment and then do another segment, but a different segment. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. 
It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt to recruit a vampire. Yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries. For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's Rugos on one side, it's Eldritch on the other, but both sides are non-Euclidean because it's the Mythos Hut. And can this time around in Mythos Hut, I thought uh, inspired by your fresh off-the-presses book, Tour to Lovecraft the Destinations, uh, in that book, among the destinations, of course, you talk about Arkham. Of course, Arkham is the chapter that everybody flips to first, and as I was reading it, it occurred to me that, well, this does a great job of telling us what Arkham was like during the period that Lovecraft set his stories in. But what about now? What about 2022? What is Arkham like in the present day? So, Ken, uh, the crumbling black city, what's the first thing that comes to mind uh, as to what what way would it be crumbling in black? Uh, perhaps only on the inside in 2022? I think that you need to sort of begin by asking, is this a one-shot visit to Arkham? Or are we trying to make this a setting that will go of itself and drive endless amounts of story? Because the one-shot Arkham either is the Arkham that's been drinking the water from the Colorado Space Reservoir for a hundred years, and therefore it's a city that's, you know, it, it looks more like one of the opioid uh, devastated towns in the uh, American Midwest because everyone is sick. Everyone is, you know, on drugs trying to avoid this horrible poison that they're ingesting with their city water and it's poor and crumbling and bang it's it's well on its way in fact to basically becoming dunwich or maybe innsmouth if it's lucky because degeneration has gotten into the city again via the uh the meteor and the water supply and so that arkham i think is great for a a, a thing where you're like oh i get it this is colorado space a hundred years later we have to be you know on the lookout for you know, weird uh, plants that move in city parks and things. And, you know, that would be a fun sort of a gauntlet adventure in the way that Innsmouth is, but it doesn't really thrive as a setting. You don't go back after you right. solve and, that and problem. And besides, if you want one for one shot, you just said Innsmouth. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I would certainly be tempted to go with a contrast. For one thing, as you point out in your essay, Arkham is double-sided. Mm. There is a bright side as well as a dark side, and, and which one 
Lovecraft chooses to emphasize depends on the dramatic needs of any uh, particular story. And I think it is interesting and fun to have that contrast of Arkham is outwardly updated. Maybe it seems fine for a while. And of course, if you introduce your players to an Arkham that seems fine, as opposed to one that seems to have been drinking the color out of space, that will freak them out even more. Right. They'll be saying, what is this hiding? Yes. Uh, their, their number of rodeos exceeds zero. So I think it is, is fun to imagine a modernized Arkham, one that actually, you know, makes a point of reflecting the fact that it is, exists in the current day so that we may, in fact, be looking at uh, gentrification, right? That it, this is a, it's a city with all this beautiful Georgian revival architecture, why wouldn't it have been snapped up by tech guys, <laughs> by tech guys and people with gift shops? And it's a tourist town at the very least, if yep. not a tourist town slash a tech hub. So it's, it's, it's like when you buy the ticket for the Salem witch tour, if you buy the $30 ticket, you also get free admission to the uh, witch house museum in Arkham, which is a fun little touristy thing. And you think, Oh, they, they added that after they saw Salem getting all those tourist dollars. Of course, Arkham could have that, but they don't make it their whole identity the way that Salem does. You know, so the shirt from the tourist store say Witch Hound at Arkham, but no one really buys that, you know, and there's, there's books of Arkham urban legends that you can buy and they're all good fun. But, you know, aside from a couple of weirdos on YouTube, no one takes any of that very seriously because Arkham's, you know, a, a happening tech suburb. It's basically part of the Route 128 complex, the, the uh, Silicon Valley that surrounds MIT and Harvard and uh, the other big research institutions, Miskatonic, of course, as it has been, you know, pursuing revolutionary questions of physics and biology. Maybe Miskatonic's got, you know, a big shiny uh, lab building where they do cutting edge biotech research and another big shiny uh, lab building, or maybe they've got you know, a, a physics facility that's out on Meadow Hill and you, you know, you take the, the bus that runs between the main campus and the Meadow Hill campus. And it, depending on what you're studying at Miskatonic, maybe you're most spend most of your time out on the Meadow, Meadow Hill area, which of course has got its own little super high tech suburb that has sprung out around it. And, you know, when people think of Arkham in the, you know, general world, they think, oh, it's that, you know, the same way that we think about Cupertino or uh, one of those places. We think, oh, that's that's right. that tech place. The people there who work on uh, AI, uh, they nickname it Arkham Intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're engaged in quantum computing. There's uh, all sorts of interesting formulae that they can use to speed up their computers. And, you know, again, it might have that beautiful outward look of, uh, you know, uh, tech campuses among the restored uh, Georgian revival architecture, the uh, abandoned wharves with the dark tangle of lanes. Well, surely those have been redeveloped. Yep. And uh, that must be, you know, one of those big waterfront restoration areas. Yep, where so, a lobster roll costs $25. Exactly. Yep. Yes. And the woods around Arkham, surely they're exurban now. So there's probably lots of, you know, relatively new uh, looking family housing. Uh, and, you know, of course, they're built on the different sites where the immortal cannibal consumed his victims, but they look nice on the, on the mm -hmm. outside. Yeah. And you could have any number of, you know, the sort of, sort of make Arkham in a way into a sort of X files setting in the sense that you're taking, you know, whatever the discontents and concerns of modern urban, or in this case, micro urban life, and you read them through the Lovecraftian Gothic the same way that Lovecraft would have done that if he'd cared 
that much about urban life. Tried to do in New York with modest success, I guess. And then he's used Arkham for other things. But I think, if, again, if you're using Arkham as a repeat setting when you're coming back to, you can, you know, start drilling down because uh, there's lots of stuff happening. There's, you know, uh, what is going on? Innsmouth is right nearby. Is it still a federally closed Superfund site? And everyone's like, well, you can't go there. It's contaminated. Or is it itself, you know, gotten a little of that gentrification money and there's just, um, you know, tour boats that go out on the harbor. Uh, you, you can mess with the whole Miskatonic River Valley. Uh, you can be talking about, instead of the reservoir, you can be like, oh, there's a new hydro project up on the Miskatonic and it's going to generate all of Arkham's power cleanly and beautifully. And there's never going to be a problem or the, maybe the, the dam is on the Minuxet, the uh, river that runs through Innsmouth because it's got waterfalls. And so you have any number of possibilities that allow you to sort of, in a way, decosmify Arkham because once it becomes Sunnydale or the equivalent, it's serving a different narrative purpose, but it's still Arkham and you can certainly add the cosmic in, you know, as you see fit. Now, Arkham, of course, has a train station. Do we figure the it is now a part of a, a bustling commuter hub or did that uh, fall away maybe in the 40s or 50s as uh, the uh, the road replaced the track as the means of transportation in America? I feel like it's no it's not on the Excella corridor, but there's like a light rail that they're very proud of that runs to whatever the closest Excella stop is you know, Boston probably. And that's was probably put in by one of the tech companies. And, you know, it uh ran through you know, it runs over the old island in the middle of uh the Miskatonic River. And that's that's just where they put the light rail. And so, you know, you you can have any number of what exactly happened when they ran the tracks over the old island. Oh, nothing. It was fine. I mean it was a closed bid, public private partnership. No no problem. What what about the environmental impact statement? What did that look like? Oh, you know, it was it was just flew through. The courts all agreed. And so you, you can make any of those things the questions in sort of the way that, you know, noir is always revealing something about urban real estate as well as about ourselves. I mean, it becomes a great place, especially the sunnier, more seemingly up and modern Arkham is, the, the better it, it, it serves as a, as a noir uh, layer over the uh, Gothic layer, even. Right. And no matter how bucolic a college town is, it still has townies. Right. Uh, and so the, here's where we start to imagine urban and exurban life through the misanthropic eyes of a contemporary Lovecraft. And so instead of, you know, the, the kids just on their skateboards, they're like lurking, shambling, slouched figures in their hideous hoodies on their rattling skate things of death or whatever. I can't even imagine what loathsome term a Lovecraft would use to describe a skateboard. <laughs> and, and given how much he didn't love jazz, he would just probably, you know, faint dead away at the thought of hip hop. Yes. But I'm sure that Arkham probably has because it's a college town, as you say, and because it has townies, as you say, and because it's, you know, part of that urban corridor, it's probably got a underground a music scene. And that also, you know, there, there's made the one that the college kids go to and the one that the townies go to and never the twain shall meet. And which one is actually playing the hideous horns and Crotala of Nyarlathotep? Who can say? Right. Well, it, it's certainly the, the old grizzled townies that you have to go to to find out, you know, exactly what happened on that street that is now a, a quiet street. And, you know, that's where you begin to hear the cannibal legends. And mm -hmm. uh, there's the, you know, the, the one guy in the Miskatonic faculty who's still got a a shifty look to him and is worried about the AI program and uh, maybe 
uh, takes you into his into his confidence. If you wanted, to, you know, a full on station duty campaign where it's right. all the adventures are in Arkham. It's the um, languages department. The European languages department is the last bastion because it's all the Latin teachers that are like, oh, I, I don't. I don't like this. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> but they're no longer part of the, you know, the cutting edge. They're, you know, basically an appendix. Uh, right. modern college is all about grant making and foreign grad students. Like this guy, he came in from, uh, somewhere in Central Asia. We're not sure, but he's doing a lot of great work with the AI and we're all very happy to have him. Right. So basically in a reverse process, uh, we've, we've reverse engineered Riverdale. <laughs> yeah. Fundamentally. Because Riverdale was like, how would Archie's hometown be if it became all dark and evil? And Archie says, how would this dark and evil town be if it was uh, modern and shiny? And they meet in the middle, and that's Riverdale, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't even have to put the Kalula mythos in the Riverdale universe because it's already there. Right. Literally. It's been added. Yeah. Possibly by a a similar sort of process where maybe someone in the writer's room was like, God, I wish we were doing Arkham instead of Riverdale. And someone else said, we can. Yes. It's called Sabrina, and it's quite... Obviously has Lovecraft in it right from the jump. Well, since we're now talking about Riverdale and not not Arkham, I think that's the end of this segment. So all of our listeners in Arkham, I hope you enjoyed this uh, this look at your hometown. I hope you're not too insulted, but I'm sure you'll be eager to hear what's waiting for you on the other side of this exciting commercial. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure this podcast gets its food before midnight with such warning heating Patreon backers as Gwendolyn Schmidt, Thomas Edward, James Tatum, Rich Spainauer, and Chris McLaren. The petty fours being passed around, the sound of a string quartet, the sight of beautiful objets dart in beautifully lit niches, Welcome us into the culture hut, where we're going to blow all that up because all of that is decadent and wrong at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Charles Picard, who writes to ask, following Robin's advice to read outside of our usual interests, I was taking in some art history when I stumbled across a mention of artist Vasily Kandinsky's experimental theater piece from 1912 called The Yellow Sound. Is this just an echo of The Yellow King? or something somehow more sinister. How can we gamify this provocative footnote to art 
and performance history. And Robin, uh, when wow. questions Kandinsky. of there's Kandinsky, there's a lot to Kandinsky. Yep. And I think really the answer is how can we not? How can you stop yourself? <laughs> dripping uh, with uh, story seeds and, uh, and potential. So Kandinsky, who lived from 1866, he died in 1944. And basically he is the earliest abstractionist, along with another artist named uh, Hilma F. Clint, who were basically the two forebears of uh, abstract art. And they were both mystics, both of them. And this tells us something very interesting, which we'll uh, develop in a bit. In 1889, he uh, was engaged in ethnographic research in Vologda, uh, which is near Moscow. And he begins to, uh, at this time, uh, which you'll notice just a few years before the 1895 of the Yellow King uh, Paris uh, setting, uh, he's already looking around him and uh, hearing colors because he uh, begins to explore an aesthetic which later will be called synesthesia, the different senses merging into one. At, the, at this point, he says, color is the keyboard and the eyes are the hammers. And obviously, right around the time of the, of the Yellow King, in 1896, one year later, he has a big moment in life where he goes, you know what? Being a law and economics professor, it just ain't me. Uh, I've been thinking about synesthesia. I've been thinking about what I learned in my ethnographic research, and I'm going to go study painting. And so he quits his uh, nice, comfortable life and moves to Munich, where he decides to become a uh, painter. And he studies under a painter called Franz von Stuck, who is very much working in the symbolist mode. He's, it's very dark and broody and heavy metal album covery and uh, uh, very symbolist. And uh, he was also a mystic as well. Von Stuck is the guy that uh, people are excited because they think he painted Hitler into his painting of Gotterdammerung, right? Isn't that Von Stuck that's got all of these, you know, horrible spirits fighting at the end of the world and one of them looks kind of like Hitler? As weird spirits tend to do. Yeah. But back to Kandinsky at this mm -hmm. point, 1909, guess what? Things are in the air. I, I guess that's all there is that can possibly filter into a Ken and Robin theme segment. Oh, wait. No. Right. He, yeah. it's not, he joins the Theosophical Society. It's everywhere you want to be. It's everywhere. And it's not just, you know, he's a theosophist and he's a painter and he's an instructionist, but rather his whole uh, reason for beginning to explore just painting geometry comes right from one of Blavatsky's doctrines, uh, which is that reality began as a single point and then radiated out through steadily more complex uh, geometric forms, which, weirdly enough, sounds sort of like the Big Bang, mm -hmm. <laughs> except the, the actual lived reality we're in is, is less geometric and more complicated than that. So in other words, Ken, I, I know you don't like abstract art, but abstract art is your thing. It's magic, Ken. All abstract art is magic. Well, technically, it's theosophy, and you know what I think of theosophy as well. Oh, there we go. But if what you want to say is abstract art is balderdash created to fulfill uh, mediocrity's intellectual ambitions, sounds right to me. Uh, Kandinsky becomes a big art theorist. He writes some books on art theory, and uh, as you say, he's sort of you know prepping the groundwork for modernism and abstraction in art. Um, and then in 1909, he writes one, uh, the first of his four color tone dramas, which is The Yellow Sound, and he publishes it in 1912. The other three color tone dramas, by the way, are Green, Black and White, and Violet, in case you're wanting to collect the whole set. Uh, the goal is that in the same way that he thinks that all of uh, matter and the existence of the world 
funnels down to one point. He believes that the performance arts have also broken apart and that dance and theater and opera have separated. And what he wants to do is reunify them, get back to that big bang moment, if you will, where all of uh, human truth happens uh, as a result of seeing and experiencing this. Well, uh, he writes it basically as a stage play with a proscenium and everything else, but there's a lot of uh, music and uh, lighting effects and other stuff that are uh, core uh, components of the, of the, uh, of the action that the, the music cues are just as serious as the lighting cues are just as serious as the uh, stage directions, which are just as serious as the relatively minimal, I think from what I was able to see dialogue in that the drama, as he said, finally consists of the complex of inner experiences, soul equal vibration of the audience. And that's Kandinsky being Kandinsky about his yeah. uh, drama. And, and there's like yellow giants and red birds and yes. basically or things uh, that this, could be birds, I think is, is yes. uh, how I've seen it written. Right. And so basically if you, if you look at a, a, a image of this and there are images of productions that you can see, it's like, Oh, this is basically what Philip glass wound up doing, except he was trying to stage this 80 years or, you know, previous to that and never quite got off the ground. The music for the original production by a composer named Thomas de Hartmann, and he's a disciple of Gurdjieff. Speaking of occultists who we've, uh, in this case, recently discussed on the podcast, that music now exists only in fragments. Speaking of story hooks. <laughs> yep. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So he publishes that in 1912, hasn't staged it yet. 1912 is also the year when he publishes his big deal book on art theory, which is also very synesthetic. And it's called On the Spiritual in Art. Uh, and it's, again, suffused with theosophy. And it becomes very influential, especially in, in England. And it's his art theory that gets people in England interested in his actual uh, paintings. And in 1914, they're just about ready to stage the play. And guess what happens in 1914? Well, Robin, they're going to stage the play in Munich. So I'm sure that what happens is um, some sort of minor urban situation that we oh no it was world war one that's what yeah. happened a giant cultural catastrophe speaking of <laughs> uh, blowing up all of art and literature and combining it into a mess <laughs> right uh he falls in love moves to russia and in the early days of the soviet revolution he's actually a uh, mid-level functionary in the soviet uh, culture ministry but in the 20s, perhaps using his spiritual powers to go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I see what's Artists, happening. <laughs> uh, mystics, free thinkers, the Soviets. Uh, let's go back to Germany. Nothing bad can happen to us in Germany. <laughs> Nothing bad can happen to us in Germany. Uh, well, you're, you're getting ahead of this story because he, <laughs> he teaches at Bauhaus uh, for a good long period from 1922 until, uh, let's see, uh, 1933, when the Nazis close it. And before the arrival of the Nazis, he makes another attempt to stage the play. Now, I don't think this is factually grounded, but it's too entertaining not to say that the uh, they're just about to stage it when the Nazis show up and close down Bauhaus. You, you can't not write the scene that way, right? Right, yeah. I mean, certainly, he's doing it in the 20s, and the Nazis show up in force in the 30s, but you can absolutely, because the Bauhaus did uh, go under the leadership of Mies van der Rohe, who stopped all that foolishness. And was he a Nazi? Who can say? Surely his architecture speaks for itself. Yeah, so he, they try to stage it at the Bauhaus. It, it draws something. Something bad happens. And uh, so he goes on to France. <laughs> right. And so France, 1933. Guess what? That's the dream hounds of Paris period. Um, now, 
Kandinsky does not rub shoulders with the Surrealists in that book by Ken and I and uh, Steve Dempsey. But if you look at his art at that period, he's increasingly using biomorphic forms. That clearly puts him in the same aesthetic area as Surrealist Yves Tanguy. And therefore, surely, if you desire it, Kandinsky uh, has entered the dreamlands and can be a character or player character in a Dream Hands of Paris uh, game. Which is all good fun. Right. And like the Surrealists, he believes uh, in an imminent apocalyptic inbreak that's going to radically change human consciousness and, and reorder society. Yeah. Having lived through World War One, I, I guess he has more excuse than most people. <laughs> right. It's just his version has uh, Christian eschatology in it, which the Surrealists uh, very much doesn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we move on into the period of the, uh, of the war, uh, some of his art is uh, looted by the Nazis. And even today, there is a contention over at least one of his artworks as to, you know, who really uh, owns it due to uh, provenance unpleasantness uh, in the 40s. <laughs> a, a interesting way to, to, to find that. But right. I already said Nazi looting. <laughs> you, you did say Nazi loot. Um, so uh, finally, in 1972, someone does uh, put on the yellow sound at the Guggenheim. And that starts a spate of it appearing in more or less intact form. Some people are like, oh, we want to do it, but we don't have all the lighting. So we're going to sort of do it. And, you know, some are better than others. There is a performance at the Tate Modern in 2011 that seems to have attracted a lot of attention. And the uh, people who put on that performance explicitly say that the purpose of this play is to incorporate the space that should not be, which they define as neither the stage nor the audience nor backstage, but some space that doesn't exist in the classical model right. of the proscenium theater. Although, to be honest, the Tate modern, if you've been there is itself, the space. This, that yeah, should not right. be. It's, it's a space that should not be within a space that should not be certainly. And so there were, you know, the question is surely nothing bad happened in America in 1972 as a result of finally performing the play that had brought about world war one, the Nazi takeover of the Bauhaus and God knows what else. Uh, yeah, America just sort of went from strength to strength to strength in 1972, as I understand it. Right, Robin? Yeah. yeah nothing, no, nothing no bad. sudden nothing crisis bad. blew apart America's sense of itself in 1973. That would be ridiculous. But there we are. Because the color yellow, uh, according to Kandinsky, is eccentric and moves toward you with aggressive earthly violence. Ooh. So staging his yellow extravaganza could not be bad. If he had a blue one, blue moves away from you and it's celestial and calm. Yeah. That may be why he didn't write a blue one. Yeah. So is there a horror gumshoe game that this, <laughs> this, <laughs> this doesn't, doesn't work on? for? Right. So definitely you could have him before he writes this show up in Paris in 1895, just before he's a, you know, he's just a regular Joe normal uh, teaching uh, law and economics in Germany. And then something happens to him. And then you can uh, flash forward to, Dreamhounds of uh, Paris scenario, and then you can have his art looted and show up later in uh, and Fall of Delta Green uh, is you know seventy two is a little past that, but you can still squinch that in there if you want. I mean, Delta Green can uh, you know stop a attempt to put it on as a as an art happening in nineteen sixty eight. I feel like there's there's no shortage of well meaning modernists who destroy everything around them in the sixties. That seems to be sort of the point of the sixties. Yeah, and of course <laughs> you know having. Uh, a modern art event show up in This Is Normal Now is exactly uh, what that is all about. Right. And uh, I suppose if you uh, squinted hard enough, uh, perhaps involving the uh, looted Kandinsky's 
uh, moving around through the criminal underground as part of a money laundering exchange. You can even uh, work that into a uh, like black agent scenario, and you could weave that in as well, and have all the characters refer to each other. Well, I mean, you can you can use the Kaninsky's uh, yellow sound or some other thing that you've based on it as a moment that you know, in the way that it brings about World War One, and then it brings about the Nazi takeover of the Bauhaus. That this you know beginning this zero point, you can either say that the zero point evolutionarily of of uh, hominids produced vampires, and so they are connected to all this zero point mystically, that they're drawn back to it. Or you can have something in that Gurdjieff music and that Kandinsky synesthesia and the Vespian mythography that he snuck in from his Vologda work. Um, You know, it's not like he went to a cold, dark place full of forests and lore, Robin, (laughs) and uh, he managed to make a thing that made vampires happen. And so uh, the rehearsals were enough to open vampires. And so the vampires have been, you know, uh, moving through society. They've been, you know, sort of on the back foot until 1972 when suddenly big explosion of vampires in New York city. And so it's, it's not specifically the yellow sound. You can do it with other methodologies, but the vampires themselves maybe don't know how they came about and they're studying it. They're just as curious as you. So you're dealing with a bunch of art historian vampires who are investigating theosophy. Right. And whether you're doing it in night's black agents or this is normal now, of course, the MacGuffin we alluded to earlier is the fact that the original Thomas de Hartman music, which was parts of which were used in the uh, English production, doesn't exist in its entirety. And surely something happens if you can recover the rest of that score and put it all together. Music has been used in other uh, plays. Anton Webern's music is sometimes used. And, and uh, Alfred Schnitzky, the Russian composer, actually wrote n- new music for it. Mm. Uh, that suggests that vampires or creatures from Carcosa like uh, atonal or 12 tone, uh, <laughs> modern classical, which I think is the demographic for that. Yeah, I think absolutely. You have to be undead and, um, uh, maybe be able to hear bats, uh, frequencies to really get into it. But yeah, that, I mean, that can be another a fun component of it is that this, you know, uh, the, the vampires, as I say, they're part of that, that zero point, that, that explosion and, the farther you go back to the primal chaos or the more you recreate it by breaking down modern uh, artistic and social consensus, the better you get uh, at vampiring or the more powerful the vampire energy is around you. And so vampires turn out to hang around the, the art world just like they do in, you know, proper vampire mo- movies. Right. Well, now that we've explained abstract art as uh, magic and 12 tone as vampiric, I think uh, it's time for us to uh, move on from this already overlong segment into another one just around over here. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. 
The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time to put on our flannels, to wear our hair long, to uh, say that corporate rock still sucks, and to watch some Beavis and Butthead because it's the 90s, but it's the 90s in the conspiracy corner because this time around, and once again, I can't believe it took us this long to get to it, it's time for a classic 90s conspiracy theory, which involves the octopus, a conspiracy investigated by a uh, investigative journalist, among many other things, named Danny Casolaro, whose death remains uh, mysterious as a result. Uh, this involves a company called Inslaw, a software package called Promise. It uh, features into the October surprise. Like any octopus, it has many tentacles. And so, Ken, start us on one of the eight tentacles. All right. Danny Casolaro basically owned a bunch of computer magazines. And then as he was getting less into running, you know, this mini empire, started selling them off. He was a curious guy. And at some point, he stumbled onto a document that purported to reveal the secret power structure in America. And the secret power structure in America was the Bush family and the CIA and the Bank of Commerce and Credit International and uh, these shadowy groups deep within the federal security apparatus that we didn't call the deep state yet because we hadn't borrowed that from the Turks. But all your favorites are there. Uh, the Wackenhut Corporation, the private security force, Everything is, is part of it, and it is a set of theses about the deep state that come out of a group called the Christic Institute that was very, very, very anti-anti-communism. They didn't enjoy the CIA's activities in Central America, not one tiny bit. And so they uh, attempted to tar, because they were good uh, Marxists, they attempted to tar the entire establishment with the brush of CIA activity. And so the octopus is basically the name for this deep state group that has its tentacles in all of these little areas. And the specific tentacle that Casolero was drawn in by is a tentacle based on a, a fellow named William Hamilton, who had developed a computer program called Promis, short for the Prosecutor Management Information System. And Promis basically just does your legal paperwork and it you know, gets all your dockets in order and it makes sure that you, you know, set your uh, hearings and it handles discovery. And it's basically just a, a, you know, office software for prosecuting lawyers. And so he gets into a big fight with the federal government saying the federal government has taken promise from him and sold it without his permission. And he didn't get any money. And the federal government said, well, you worked for us. You built it on our time. You don't get any money. It was work for hire. Right. And that runs through the courts and is overturned 
Finally, uh, a decision rendered against him by an appeals court in 1991, which is right around when Danny Casolaro is really getting involved in this. And uh, Hamilton, as he becomes ever more angry at the federal government, uh, becomes ever more prone to believing the federal government is doing bad things. And so someone, possibly Hamilton, possibly one of Hamilton's hangers-on, says that the federal government has sneakily put back doors into Promis so that when uh, the Justice Department sells it to every other country in the world to run their courts with, you can tap in and spy on their court proceedings, which is maybe true, but hardly seems worth all of this nonsense. But there we are. That's the that's the theory. And that theory, uh, to whatever extent Hamilton believes it, is promulgated by the Lyndon LaRouche organization, which, of course, loves big octopus-type theories and is happy to indict the deep state as long as you add the Queen of England and uh, the international banks to it. And there we go. So there's a guy who is a buddy of the LaRouches, maybe not a LaRouche himself, named Michael Riconosciuto, who is described uh, in a Vanity Fair story on this as a rogue scientist, weapons designer, platinum miner, crystal meth manufacturer. So, uh, or, or multi-class, for sure. Exactly, right. He's he Everything defaults to science with this guy. So he is brought in to the case as Casolaro is investigating this deep state stuff because his story is that when the Iranian government made the secret October surprise deal with the Reagan campaign to not release the hostages, the payoff for the guy who was the middleman of it was that he got the money from the illegal distribution of promise. So that's the connection between the October surprise conspiracy, which again, not a ton of evidence for that's, that's what links it into, into this particular bit of the octopus. And as right. Casolaro begins to dig deeper and deeper into these questions, then you get more and more wild bits of the story that, that are brought on. Like, for example, the Bank of Commerce and Credit International, which is a big commercial bank that failed dramatically in the early 90s and was thought to be a place that uh, arms runners parked a lot of their profits. Well, it was a bank that worked in the Middle East, so you do the math. Of course, arms runners put their profits there. So one assumes did people who ran bodegas in Dubai. Everyone put their money in banks, and that's that, that's why banks exist. Uh, but in this case, the BCCI's collapse was sort of shady because it involved a lot of, you know, government investigations and investigations of other people with potential ties to the government, including the extended family of president of vice president at the time, then President Bush. So lots of grist for the basic Christic Institute octopus mill. Right. And, and this is kind of all over kind of quasi lefty media yeah, absolutely. And zine scene at this time. It's, it's gigantic. You, I was getting super deep into conspiracy theories and, and whatnot in the late eighties and early nineties. And you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting this stuff. It does not take an investigative journalist to have uncovered it. Right. And the thing about it is that the, the outer layer, the normal bit, you know, the, the ring around the rabbit hole as it were is not that exciting and hard to get worked up about, especially if you're sort of a, a, a flannel wearing uh, alt person because like, Oh, it's about software ownership. And this other guy who's creating software for prosecutors. It's okay. It's kind of hard to get mad about this. But the thing of course, that made it a lasting big deal is that Casalero was found dead in what many people describe as mysterious circumstances on August 10th of 91 at a Sheraton in Martinsburg, 
West Virginia. And uh, the mysterious circumstances would include the absence of any drugs in his system that would cause him to have been knocked unconscious and the absence of any evidence that he struggled with anyone before cutting his wrists. So burden of proof, I think, is on the people who say it was not a suicide. Their arguments are he really hated the sight of blood. Probably if he were going to commit suicide, wouldn't have cut his wrists and had written notes to his family saying, I'm getting weird phone calls. I'm being followed. If I'm found mysteriously dead, it was the government that did it. But the trouble is that suicidal ideation and conspiratorial ideation are not so far apart that one discounts the other. So the uh, FBI officially said, this is nothing. This is a suicide. But certain FBI agents didn't like the, the, the neatness of it. And there is a, you know, sort of a, uh, a backspin theory that Casolaro killed himself in an uncharacteristic manner and made it look like a attempt to make a murder look like a suicide in an attempt to jumpstart his story because he'd submitted it to little Brown. It had been rejected. He'd submitted it to various magazines and it had been rejected. Um, he was, you know, saying, Oh, I'm researching the octopus for time magazine. And you'd call time magazine and they say, Oh, castle arrow, you know, get a load of this. And so, you know, there was a situation in which he felt that he was being stonewalled. He's getting deeper and deeper into that conspiratorial ideation that absolutely happens. It happened to him. It happened to Maury Terry. It happens to a lot of, you know, Jim Garrison, lots of people who you would thought were relatively sound investigators. 20 to 30% of the population of <laughs> yeah. Western countries. Right. Yeah. But yeah, this is, you know, this, this is, you know, cue back when you had to work at it, I guess. And so that's the, that, that's the story. That's, that's where it hangs. And because of course, you know, narratives, they want a human interest hook. They, uh, every cause needs a martyr. Suddenly, uh, Danny Casolaro's death becomes the somewhat tasteless foundation on which the modern octopus theory, not the modern, because people don't really care about octopus anymore. Uh, we have bigger deep states to worry about now, but the octopus theory sort of battened for, you know, the decade after uh, Castellaro's death until, as I say, 9-11 and uh, the surveillance state gave us uh, bigger fish to fry. Right. And so, as you suggest, it's a precursor of QAnon on one hand, and also sort of the background radiation for a lot of the conspiratorial media portrayals that emerge at that time, uh, including, of course, the X-Files has a bunch of that feeling in it. And, uh, you know, even like the Ascended and Feng Shui are drawn from that idea. And of course, there's a ton of movies that have, uh, you know, the international evil uh, conspiracy with the black SUVs and, and guns to draw on. And, and that sort of gave a new veneer, I think, to what conspiracies uh, look like. Was there an earlier one that, that just as every you know, the conspiratorial thinking gains a new skin every 10 to 20 years based on current events. Is, I guess the, the previous one would be like MK Ultra and so forth. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of the left version of it definitely was the gemstone conspiracy that CIA had uh, certain deep secrets that it was covering up and that knowledge of those deep secrets gave you uh, levers of power and that uh, Aristotle and Nassus was involved. Uh, the Kennedys were killed over gemstone. Gemstone was sort of the, the pre octopus or pre Danny Casolaro version of the unified field left conspiracy theory on the right. Of course, we always had communism. We could just say, well, it was all communists. That's what done it. And you got a problem with that. 
Well, you're just not yeah. looking hard enough for communists. Communists in their fluoride. And then in somewhere in the magical null space that is uh, conspiracy theory, uh, you have your LaRouches who have their own unified field theory, but it's a crazy unified field. Or you get out to your David Ickes with the reptoids that pops out of LaRouche, or basically the LaRouche complex in the 80s. LaRouche is there building his theoretical substrate in the 60s and 70s. He's, of course, building it on the generally right-wing fear of international bankers, because many of them are Jews conspiracy. That, of course, goes back to the old Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which turned out to have been a Russian espionage counter-op that uh, both failed and succeeded to remarkable degrees. Right. And then in the middle of all this, too, you've got Satanic Panic, Mm -hmm. uh, which is coexisting in time with this, and that's uh, for a different demographic. And then, you know, that turns into uh, Sharia law panic, and then merges back uh, with this to turn into uh, QAnon. And so basically, is it interesting to take any of the actual details of this and, and make them into the basis of a scenario? Or is this just all too creepy and weird and you always want to be in a thing where there's something wholesome like demons and this is just something people believe? I mean, I think that, you know, the the fun part of these conspiracy theories is to use them as uh, sort of you know, setting notes or wallpaper that, you know, if you're looking for something, why not involve Promis? Why not say, oh, this was developed as part of the Promis program. And then people looked that up and they're like, oh, that's interesting. I, I think that, you know, Castellaro's death is a tragedy. You could certainly reskin it as something that happened to your fictional com- uh, conspiracy investigator. But I think building specifically on on his suicide is it is it's it's more tasteless than i would do but again people may consider that part of the part of the furniture in the same way that i consider the kennedy assassination i don't see there's a problem with involving that in something everyone's going to have their own line i think that you can definitely you know if you want your conspiracy to go all the way back to the you know og x-files time you know bringing in your october surprises and your and your uh, octopuses it, it's a it's a good uh, note to hit I don't know that the details are particularly relevant to today. Right. Or, or it could be the disinformation that was set up to cover, you know, the vampires or the Ezra right. terror or what, what have you. Yeah, the, the, this is the sort of cover story. And Octopus is actually the vampire conspiracy at the heart of the American uh, national security state. And the, you know, Roskenshuto, when he was working on the uh, Indian reservation building powerful fuel air explosives, he was actually working with the vampires or he was part of the, you know, federal government's uh, anti-vampire program or vampire testing program. And that that's how he suddenly gets into meth and, uh, and weird, uh, drugs is that he's, you know, been vampirized or, or touched right. vampirism. Well, once this podcast is getting into meth, it's time to stop. <laughs> no, no, Robin, it's meth. time to record 95 more episodes. <laughs> Uh, well, we, we we do have a banked episode for later to record, but for the purposes of this podcast, let's wave goodbye to our listeners, and we'll be back next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure the sound of this podcast retains its wholesome color by joining such backers as... Adam Grotjohn. Alan McSager. Benjamin Rawls. Jacob Ansari. And Jamie Twine. Wear this show or drink 
drink it from a mug with Kenny Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrels of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>